ಸಜ್ಜೀವಂ ಸಗುಜಾತ ಸಾಧನಾಜೀವ ಸದ್ವೈತಂ ಸದ್ವೃತಂ ಪರಿಚಿನಾ ಸಾಹಿತ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಚೈತನ್ಯ ಶ್ರೀ ರಾಧಾಕೃಷ್ಣಪದ And reading from Chaitanya Charitamrita, Anchalila, Chapter 5, Ramananda Roy instructs Purjini Misra, Text 122. Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jaya Jaya Chandra Jaya Gaurabhakta Vrinda ಡಿಸ್ಟಿಂಕ್ಷನ್ ಬಿಟ್ವೀನ್ ದಾಡಿ personal identity deha body chit ananda all made of blissful spiritual energy nahika vibeda there is no distinction translation and purport by shila prabhupad at no time is there a distinction between the body and the soul of the supreme personality of godhead his personal identity and his body are made of blissful spiritual energy there is no distinction between them purport lord krishna the son of nanda maharaj is advaya gyana in other words there is no distinction between his body and his soul for his existence is completely spiritual according to the verse in shrimad bhagavatam beginning with the words vadanti tat tatva vidas tatvam 1211 the absolute truth is always to be understood from three angles of vision as brahman paramatma and bhagavan unlike the objects of the material world however the absolute truth is always one and always the same thus there is no distinction between his body and his soul his form name attributes and pastimes therefore are completely distinct from those of the material world one should know perfectly well that there is no difference between the body and the soul of the supreme personality of godhead when one conceives of a distinction between his body and his soul one is immediately conditioned by material nature because a person in the material world makes such distinctions he is called a bada jiva a conditioned soul quite interesting what Jill Prabhupada is saying here I actually spent hours today 
meditating on what Prabhupada means by this. I'm going to read this again. This just the end here. When one conceives of a distinction between his body and his soul, between, in other words, Krishna's body and Krishna's soul, one is immediately conditioned by material nature. Because a person in the material world makes such distinctions, he is called Bhadajiva, a conditioned soul. So Prabhupada's saying here that if you say Krishna is different from his body, Krishna has a soul and, his, and a body, then immediately you're conditioned soul. And anyone who says that Krishna is different from his body must be understood to be conditioned soul. That's fine. As long as he's not crying. That's fine. Ishwara nahi kabu deha dehi veda swarupa deha chirananda nahi ka viveda At no time is there a distinction between the body and the soul of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. His personal identity and his body are made of blissful spiritual energy. There is no distinction between them. So our material experience is that there's a big difference, just as there's a big difference between what something appears to be and what it is. So we had a meeting last night with some people who want to start a school. And I was making the point that every school that I know of, devotee school, non-devotee school, it doesn't matter. What the school says they are and what they are are never the same thing. In education, we talk about four curriculums. The planned curriculum, the actually taught curriculum, the hidden curriculum, and the null curriculum. The planned curriculum is what you say you're going to do, or what you say you do, what you tell everybody you do. It's usually in a nice book, all printed and laid out, that you give to the people on the school board and you show to the parents, etc. Then there's what's actually taught in the classroom, and it's never the same thing. Then there's what you teach indirectly, by what kind of rules you have, by what kind of building you have, by what books you use, by the relationships between people. And that kind of teaching has much more effect than what you stand up and talk about. And then there's what you teach by what you don't teach. What's taboo? What do you not talk about? What's not covered? And that's actually the most powerful form of teaching, is what you don't talk about. But my point is that appearance and reality in material life are always different. And it comes down to that none of us is what we appear to be. It comes down to that level. Now all of us know, we don't like to admit this, but all of us know that we're presenting a persona to the world that's different from who we really are inside, right? Can we, we all admit this? That what we're projecting to the world, this is the kind of person I am, and who we actually are is not exactly the same. And this is even true with the people with whom we're the most intimate, our husband, our wife, our children, our close friends. 
there's probably nobody that fully sees us as we see ourselves, right? Now, if you get someone who sees you close to how you see yourself, maybe you've got, what, one, two, three people in the world who actually see you as you are. But nobody really sees us as we are because even we don't see ourselves as we are. We're actually even fooling our own self. There's a constant difference between what we appear to be and what we are. And Prabhupada gives this example all the time that somebody has not even seen their own father. When your father dies, he uses this example because generally the father dies before the child. So most of us, either we've already seen our father die or we will see our father die. When the father dies, you're crying. Oh, my father's gone, my father's gone, my father's gone. So I was there, I was in the room with my mother when she passed away. And one minute the person's there and one minute they're not there. But the body is still there. That means I never saw the person. I only saw the body. What do I really know about that person? All I know is their identity in this life. It's almost like you're in a drama. Some of us, we've been in a play, yes? Maybe in school or something. You're in a drama. So it's as if we're all in a drama, we're in a play, and all we know are our identities in the drama. Like years ago, I was in the Ramayana, and I used to play Shurpanika. You know, and there's one devotee playing Ravana, and there's one devotee playing Ram. Just imagine if I didn't know them off the stage. <laughs> you know, if only I'm thinking this is actually Ravana, and this is actually Jatayu. But that's what's happening in our life. This body is a costume. It's not our actual self. And even my mind is not my actual self, which is a relief. Because this body's a pretty nasty thing, isn't it? Even the nice parts of the body, like our hair or our eyes, are, are they're actually nasty. If you had a you know, plate in front of you with eyeballs, you find some hair lying on the ground. And even our minds, we have to, again, admit, if we're honest, are not very nice. Anybody here have a completely nice mind? Oh, there's so many crazy things in our mind. Right? Our mind is full of, we criticize other people in our mind, we're envious of other people in our mind, we're greedy in our mind. Correct? So many things come into our mind that we dare not act on. And we dare not say we'd be arrested, we'd be <laughs> locked up somewhere. So it's a good thing that we're not our mind and we're not our body. But we're presenting as if we're our mind and our body. And all I see of other people is the mind and the body. I don't see the real self. The first time I heard Srila Prabhupada lecture in person, he was saying, how can you see God when you can't even see the little part of God that's the soul. We're not seeing the real soul. So if someone thinks that God is like that, that means they're a conditioned soul. It's offensive to think that God is fake. He's phony. He's not what he appears to be. 
think, oh, the real God is, is hiding in the, the form of Bhagavan. It's something illusory. It's, it's, a, it's a masquerade. It's a fake thing. I mean, we think about our material duality. The word Prabhupada uses here in this purport is Advaya Jnana. So this means, again, non-dual. Advaya is like Advaita. So this world is full of duality. In duality, again, who we seem to be and who we are is different. There's a duality. I appear to be Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, and I appear to have this, but it's not. The reality is something different. I'm dealing with the false thing and the reality. And therefore, there's not really any, it's not really any integrity. I mean, we talk about integrity in terms of honesty, but the whole foundation is dishonest. If I pretend to be something that I'm not, how can I have an honest relationship? Impossible. The, the foundation itself is, is off. Integrity has something to do with the word integrated. But we're not, a conditioned soul is not integrated. There's a, there's a big difference between the soul, the body, and the mind. They're not all working harmoniously. And we can talk about a, a real person of character, what they are inside and what they are outside is the same. But for a conditioned soul, that's never fully the case. Therefore, we never have really authentic relationships. We never have ultimate integrity, which is why we're so disappointed in this world. Aren't we all disappointed? Right? We're so disappointed. We think, well, if I have a relationship with this person, if I live in this place, if I work at this job, but it doesn't, nothing ever fulfills its promise. Everything in this world is over-promising and under-delivering. What you think you're going to get and what you get, they don't match. So the whole nature of this world, right? and we have this illusion of being the actor, not only do we have this problem with others, we have it with ourselves. Now, both in the fifth chapter and the thirteenth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about how that when the body's doing something, I'm not doing anything. I'm just the witness. So not only do I not really know others, I don't even know myself. I'm thinking, I'm driving my car, I'm working at my job, I'm cooking the meal, but I'm not. I'm simply observing. So again, it's this duality. And in this duality, I get all sorts of concepts of good and bad and auspicious and inauspicious that, again, are, they're not real. I'm thinking, well, this is good for my body or my mind, but I'm not my body or my mind. So well, this is auspicious for the body and mind. Or, or these are my people, like Arjuna thought in the Bhagavad Gita, Swajana, these are my people and these are those people. <laughs> the whole friends and enemies, these people are for me, these people are against me, none of which is real. It's just, it's just not what's actually going on. So our perceptions, our identity is dual, our relationships have this duality, our perceptions of everything has duality. So we shouldn't think that Krishna's like that. We shouldn't think that Krishna is a, a con man or, a, or full of duality, full of, of uh, falsity. Krishna is authentic. 
With Krishna, what you see is what you get. What you see is the real thing. Krishna's form and Krishna is the same. And if you're dealing with somebody who has full integrity and is fully authentic, then you can trust. <coughs> then you can surrender and then you can love. How can you trust and surrender and love somebody or something that's different from what they appear? You can't. And we put our surrender and trust and love materially and we get disappointed. But Krishna is not like that. He's the real self. And Prabhupada makes the point here that he can be seen differently. Because I was also really meditating, why is Prabhupada quoting this verse? Vedanti tat tat vidas tatvam. This is a very important verse in the Bhagavatam, 1 2 11. Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Sabdhite. It's a very important verse, and it's important on many levels and for many reasons. It's important in our preaching that we see even if somebody thinks God is ultimately Brahman or God is ultimately Paramatma, it's all the same God. We don't see that the worshippers of the Brahman are worshipping something other than Krishna. It's also Krishna. We have a very monotheistic philosophy. There's one God. But he can be seen differently. So there's no difference between Krishna and Krishna's form. And yet, according to our perception, I may perceive Krishna differently. So I may perceive Krishna as just a, a white light spread in all directions. Or I may perceive Krishna as the soul of the soul the ultimate neutral witness and overseer and permitter. Or I, may perceive, or I may perceive Krishna in any of his different incarnations. Ramadi, Murti, Shukala, Niyamena, Tistandana, Avatar, Makaro, Bhubaneshu, Kintu, Krishna, Swayam, Samabhava, Parama, Pumanyo. I may perceive God as Narayan. I may perceive God as Ram. I may perceive God as Nasinga. And you can say, well, they're all different. How can we say God is non-dual? How can we say as Advaya Jnana? Because they're all the same person and they're all real. It's not that only Krishna is the real and the Brahman is false. Or only Krishna is the real and the Singadeva is false. Or only Narayan is the real and Krishna is false. They're all real and they're all the same person. Then you might say, but if they're all the same person and they're all real... And if God and his body are identical, if there's no inside-outside, then how is it that these forms appear very different from one another? So, of course, then we get into the mystery of rasa. That although on the platform of tattva, there's no difference. On the platform of rasa, Krishna relishes different moods. And when Krishna relishes different moods, because there's no difference between himself and his form, his moods are expressed in his form. Now that's true to some extent even for us with the material body. My emotions are expressed in my body. When we teach people how to write in school, we tell them you should show, not tell. I don't know if you all remember that from your writing classes in school. But you don't put a character in a story and say, she was angry. 
you say. She stomped into the room, slammed the door, threw her books on the table and yelled, I'm not going to do this anymore. And you can understand by the actions that the person is angry. So when we are angry, there's changes in our physiology. There's changes in, in our coloring. And there's changing in our breathing. There's changing in the way we hold ourselves. The same thing when we're happy. And there are even people who are trained, especially a police force, they're trained to notice slight changes of facial muscles that indicate a person's emotions and a person's mentality. Uh, Prabhupada used to like to quote, the face is the index of the mind. So even for us in this dual existence, when I change my mood, it's reflected in my body. Not entirely, but to some extent. So when Krishna changes mood, because Krishna and his form are the same, Krishna's body reflects that mood. When Krishna is very angry, he appears as Nasingadev. When Krishna is thinking, I want to enjoy by digging in the earth, then he accepts the form of Varaha. So according to his desire and according to his mood, his form manifests differently. And of course it also manifests differently according to the mood of the worshiper, as Lord Kapiladev says, that Krishna assumes whatever form the devotee wants to worship him in. In fact, Krishna appears a little different to each jiva. Sanatana Goswami explains this in the 13th chapter of the 10th canto, when Lord Brahma has stolen all of the calves and the cowherd boys. And then when he comes back to see what happened, they all manifest as Vishnu forms. You all know that story? And then around each Vishnu form, there's all living entities, all varieties of living entities worshipping each Vishnu form. And it's described that each living entity is worshipping Vishnu according to their nature. And for those who are conditioned, they're worshipping according to their conditioned nature. For those who are liberated, they're worshipping according to their rasa. And Sanatana Goswami gives a commentary, I can't remember the number of the verse, where he says that Krishna has unlimited qualities and there are unlimited jivas. And each jiva has a particular quality of Krishna that especially delights them. And so Krishna particularly manifests that quality for that jiva. And plus each jiva has a particular nature and a particular quality that especially attracts Krishna. So Krishna has a very individual relationship with each jiva. And each jiva therefore perceives him somewhat differently. But the fact that Krishna is perceived differently by each jiva and the fact that Krishna manifests differently for different circumstances and for each jiva is not indicative of Krishna having a dual nature or more than dual, because advoita machuta manadi manantarupan, unlimited forms. So the fact that he has unlimited forms doesn't mean he has, you know, that they're all different persons and that you can't really find anything integrated. What it really indicates is that Krishna is the ultimate person. If the absolute truth were impersonal, then everyone would perceive it in the same way, or nearly the same way. For example, if we asked everyone here to describe this cup, 
we'd come up with very similar descriptions. And if we were to describe it using math and chemistry and physics, we'd all come up with exactly identical descriptions. We'd measure it, we'd come up with the same measurements, the same weight, the same shape, correct? So if God was simply something impersonal, like a mathematical formula, you know, that's the view of modern atheistic scientists. They think the ultimate absolute truth is a mathematical formula or a chemical formula. What do they call it? They call that, that they hope to find... Hmm? No, no, no. There's an equation. I forget what it is. Anyway, they hope to find one equation that would describe all reality, and they have some word for that equation. Something you can put on a T-shirt. You know, some simple equation like equal mc squared. And this would describe all of reality. But we find that within society there's different religions. There's different descriptions of God. Even within our Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, we have different descriptions of God. Correct? God described as Nasinga. God described as Ramana. God described as Narayan. God described as Ram. What to speak of among the different traditions, or here is Prabhupada talking about the Brahman and Paramatma. Why? Why so many different descriptions? Because God is a person. These different descriptions do not indicate duality. They indicate personhood. So even an ordinary person in this world, if you take any, any member of your community here, and if we were to ask every other member of the community to describe that one person, the descriptions would all be very different. Unlike if everybody's going to describe this cup. Because each of us has a different relationship with that person. Right? If we picked you and we said, okay, everybody describe Merlin Manahan. Each description would be somewhat different. Or me, or any of you. Some people would say, oh, that Ermila, she's the most wonderful person. Other people would say, I don't like her at all. I never want to see her again. Right? And everything in between. And the very things that one person appreciated, another person would be uncomfortable with. Correct? So as soon as you have a person, all the other relationships with other persons are going to be individual. And so we perceive God differently because he's a person, not because he's dual. He is non-dual. He is reality. He is the absolute truth. Param satvam dimahi. Satvam, the supreme truth. Param, the supreme truth. Everything about him is true. There's nothing about him that's false. Each of his moods are true. So each of his incarnations, each of his manifestations, they're each absolute reality. Well, then you might argue, but wait a second, Krishna, especially as Krishna, not so much as Nasinga, Vaman, Varaha, or Narayan, or Ramchandra, but as Krishna, he doesn't seem to always be telling the truth. Krishna tells Mother Yasoda that he's going to bed at night and actually he gets up in the middle of the night and dances with the gopis. 
And when Mother Soda sees him in the morning and says, you know, you don't look very clean. I guess you didn't have a proper bath yesterday. So nobody says, well, actually, Mother Soda, he did have a proper bath. He was just out all night. Right? He's not, he's not telling his mother the truth. In fact, he especially lies to his mother, doesn't he? He says, you know, I didn't actually steal any butter. He's got butter all over his face and butter all over his hands. And he's there, I didn't take the butter. Right? So we could say like that. And just like Narayan, you know, Narayan is standing with his four hands straight. Even Ramchandra is standing straight. But Krishna is standing crooked. Right? And even among the gopis, you know, Chandravali's friends come and they say, Krishna, are you going to come and meet with Chandravali? And he says, yes, yes, you tell her I'll be there in a minute. And then he goes with Radharani. So you could say like that. Or what is this? How can Krishna be the absolute truth? He's also duplicitous. But that kind of uh, apparently duplicity is simply fun. Uh, just like if you're with very, very close friends, you may be insulting one another. Do you ever do this with very close friends? You're, you may be giving very bad insults. Uh, that, but it doesn't mean you're actually insulting them. And you may even uh, jokingly lie to your friends. Correct? Do we do this? Yes. In fact, if you're very, very intimate with somebody, very, very intimate with some people that you trust completely and they trust you completely, uh, you may be joking around and lying. And joking around and insulting. So when Krishna behaves like this, it's only with his very, very intimate devotees. And everybody knows the actual fact. Actually, they know. It's just, they're simply, it's simply fun. It's simply an exchange of love. But you can only do that, Krishna only does that with those who are very, very intimate. And he likes to be intimate like that. We all want to have people that we can be so intimate with that we can have this kind of exchange. We also enjoy this. So God also enjoys this. So this is not, uh, this Krishna stealing the butter and dancing with the gopis and saying, yes, yes, I'm going to Mathura, I'll be back in a few days and staying away for years and years and years. So this kind of thing is not duplicity. It is part of this intimate relationship. So this is what we're looking for. We're looking for a relationship with a person that's real. We're looking for something authentic. Sometimes in this world, we buy something that's fake because we can't afford the authentic thing. But we really want something that's authentic. At least we want to fool other people that it's authentic. Like they told me in China, even the Nike company sells copies when I was in China. But if you can afford it, of course you want the real thing. You want the real gold, not the gold-plated, gold-painted aluminum. Recently I was in Vrindavan and the, the style there is now synthetic saris that look like silk. And I said, why has this become popular? It used to be in Vrindavan. Nobody wore the synthetic. 
I said, why is it popular? They said, oh, now the silk is so expensive. Everybody wants the silk, but it's so expensive, they can't afford to buy it anymore. So they're buying the fake silk. That's interesting. We were One friend of mine asked me to buy her some things in Chennai. So there we went in these shops, and they have all these signs, silk, silk. And I said, that's not really silk, is it? They said, no, no, the real silk is upstairs. I said, so why do you call it silk? They said, oh, everybody knows. This is the floor for the synthetic, and that's the floor for the silk. But if they can afford it, everybody will buy the silk. Everyone wants the real thing. They're only buying the synthetic because they can't afford the 3,000 rupees of sari. Paying 300 rupees a sari. We want the real thing. We want authentic relationships. We want everything authentic. We, we don't like to be cheated. We don't want to be cheaters, and we don't like to be cheated. And we have so much uh, angst knowing that everyone we're dealing with ultimately is cheating us because nobody we're dealing with is who they appear to be. And we know in our heart of hearts that we're cheating everybody also, that we are not presenting our real self to anybody. And as a soul, we're hankering, where can I be in a situation where things are real? Where what you see is what you get. Where people say what they mean and mean what they say, where you can count on something. And if someone says, I'll be there for you, they'll actually be there. And they can be there. Even if I say to you, yes, I will be there. It's not under my control, correct? Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati would always say, Krishna willing. Someone would say, oh, are you going to do this preaching gate? Krishna willing. How can we say? So when we understand this about Krishna, when we understand that Krishna is non-dual, who Krishna is and his form, not only his form, everything, his form, his name, his qualities, his pastimes are all him. What I do is different than who I am. My name is different than who I am. My form is different than who I am. All of these things, you're never touching me. With Krishna, you just say Krishna's name. There's Krishna. So when we understand this, talked about this also the other day, similar point. Janma karma chame divyam evam yo veti tattva deham punar janma naitimam medisorjana. When we know that they're divyam, they're divine, just knowing that, really knowing that, puts us on the platform of liberation. And Prabhupada makes this apparently astonishing statements that if you simply think that Krishna is full of duality, you're a conditioned soul. If you think, oh, Krishna is also a cheater, he's also from immediately, then you're not seeing things as they are. You're seeing things in illusion. So why do we study this? We study this so we can get the impetus to surrender to Krishna, which, by the way, solves all of our problems. Whatever problems we may have, I'm sure all of us have at least more than one problem, right? 
two, at least two or three. Whatever problems we have, they're gone completely by surrender to Krishna. By surrender to Krishna, by falling in love with Krishna, we see the reality. We see the reality of ourselves. We see the reality of the world. We see everything clearly. And as soon as we see everything clearly, we understand there are no problems. I don't die. I can't get hurt. I have everything that I need always. I have everything that I want always. All of my conceptions of scarcity and fear are simply within the mind. And therefore there's no more problems. And one is liberated. One is liberated from material fear. One is liberated from material hankering. And one comes to his proper position of peace. So therefore this concept that Krishna is non-dual is extremely important. Only by understanding that Krishna is non-dual will we have the trust and the faith to surrender to him. I was thinking a lot with this verse about the song Nitai Parakamala, Nitai Parakamala Koti Chandra Shushitala, that the lotus feet of Lord Nityananda are just like millions and millions of moons. So to come out of our realm of duality, to come into the authentic, non-dual nature, we feel such a relief. Oh, finally, someone who's real, someone with whom I can be real, someone who's not going to cheat me, some situation where appearance and reality are the same, where there's no artificial posturing, where there's no trying to impress people, where there's no putting forward of some sort of false persona. Uh, such a relief. And Prabhupada, in commenting on that song, he says, one may think that just like I've been cheated by so many other shelters, so the lotus feet of Lord Nichananda will also cheat me. No. Sevaka Nitya, his service for Lord Nichananda, that is eternal. One's relationship with Krishna is going to be eternal. It never changes and you find it, oh, actually it's something else. You thought it was like this, it was something else. Well, for all of eternity, it is what it appears to be. For all of eternity, one can have a genuinely authentic relationship. So before we will surrender, we have to be convinced. Prabhupada says, blind following is condemned. So this study of the Shastra, this meditating on this philosophy, is to bring us to the point that we say yes. I will do this. I will actually surrender to Krishna. I will give Krishna my love. I will give him my trust. I will give Krishna my very will, knowing that if I do so, that I will find my authentic self and I will relate with the person who is non-dual. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Uh, yes. How... We can be successfully doing the things in the in the relation with karma, manasamacha, with karma, with speaking, and in the mind. Okay. We can have one focus. One. How I can become. Like How can you become a fully integrated person? Yeah. Only when you realize your true self. As long as I think I'm something other than what I am, I'm in duality and I cannot be integrated. When I'm in duality, I'm full of fear. 
as soon as I think I'm this body and I'm this mind, then I'm constantly afraid of death. What is death? Death means the destruction of this particular false identity. And as long as I'm in illusion about my identity, then I feel that I'm in need, I feel that I'm in want. And as we said earlier, this body and this mind are not very nice. So as long as I think that I'm this body and this mind, I'm always going to be trying to pretend to be something else. Because I don't want to be this body and this mind. How awful. Take the body and dress it up in different ways so it looks a little better than it is, smells a little better than it is. Correct? I try to I try to hide the aspects of my mind. But if I know who I really am, first of all, then I don't have to be pretending. I don't have to pretend. Who I really am is wonderful. Nothing wrong with who I really am. Who I really am doesn't stink, and who I really am doesn't get old, and who I really am doesn't have any envy or lust or anger or grief. So why pretend? Who I am. Externally we know, apparently, but actually then comes greed. Well, therefore we have to realize who we really are. We can say, I'm not this body, I'm a soul. We have to realize that. Until we realize that, we're not going to be integrated persons and we're not going to be who we want to be and we're not going to act the way we want to act and there will not be a harmony between our body, mind and it. We can't on a false platform. So we need to realize the self. That there's no... There's not another way. I mean, if you come to sattva guna, if you come to the mode of goodness, you'll be reasonably integrated and you'll be a, a reasonably full of integrity, but not completely. The mode of goodness is still a kind of contamination. It's that nice purport. I think it's in the 13th chapter, 13th or 14th, but I think it's 13th, of Bhagavad Gita, where Prabhupada says, you know, sometimes you're a dog, sometimes you're a person, sometimes you're a bug, and sometimes you're a saintly person, he says. In other words, sometimes you're in the mode of goodness. So that comes pretty close. You know, someone's in the mode of goodness. They're, they're, they almost have integrity. And for conditioned souls, you think, wow, this person really has integrity. But it's still not complete. When we realize who we are, we're wonderful. We're part of God. You don't have to pretend to be beautiful. You are beautiful. You don't have to pretend to be kind. You are kind. You don't have to pretend to be honest. You are honest. And once you realize who you are, then the mind and the body become spiritualized. Therefore, the bodies of saints are generally buried instead of burned. And therefore, the substances from the bodies of saints, the dust from their feet, the, the leftover food that they've eaten. Normally, you don't eat somebody's, we don't eat somebody's leftover food. Polluted. But if someone has a spiritualized body, 
then the remnants of their food have a spiritual effect, the dust from their feet. I mean, again, you don't walk on the street up to some ordinary person and take the dust from the bottom of their feet. So then the body and mind are also in harmony. But there, there's no other solution. I mean, we should try to act as much as possible in the mode of goodness until we become actually self-realized. But please don't think anything other than self-realization will solve the problem. <coughs> He's curious, huh? Krishna is also curious. Any other questions, comments? Yes. How to come to the self-realization? How to go further this realization? You want to go faster? Yes. You want to go further and faster? Yes. Well, you all know the answer to this question. This is not a new a new question or a new answer. How do you go faster? Become more determined. Become more attentive in what you're doing. So if you're already chanting, chant with more attention. As much as possible, whenever you remember, as far as possible, be attentive to what you're doing. When you're reading the scriptures, read with attention. When you're chanting, chant with attention. When you're taking the prasadam, do with attention, with love. Do the activities of bhakti, not just with your body, but also with your emotions and your thoughts and your will, as much as you can. And if you forgot for the last three hours, then do it now. And if you only do it for five minutes, celebrate you do it for five minutes. And next day, try to do it for five and a half minutes. And, and keep that. You, you'll fail, but keep trying. And then at one point, Krishna will say, yes, I'll help you. And the other thing is don't offend anybody. Oh. If you really want to make rapid advancement, I'll tell you one other thing also. Do, do the activities of bhakti with attention. Don't do them as some official ritual. Don't do them as, this is my religion. Do them with, as, it's a process of yoga. You're connecting with Krishna. It's a spiritual process. As much as possible. And again, if you forget, don't lament that you forgot. Just start now. Okay, I've been taking prasadam for the last five minutes, not paying any attention. All right, let me start now. Yes, Krishna ate this. As much as you possibly can. Don't offend anybody. Anybody. Even the little worms and the bugs. Don't offend Basically, try to live a life as far as you possibly can that is offenseless. And a lot of the times when we offend others is because we're defending ourselves. So if I can never be hurt, if I can never die, if I can never be in want of anything because I'm a soul, what do I need to defend and attack for? Why? I mean, sometimes, like Narada Muni had this disciple that was a snake, and he told the snake, don't bite. And then he came back and said, how are you doing? And he said, well, all the children are throwing stones at me because I don't bite anymore. And Narada Muni said, well, you can show your hood. Uh, so sometimes in ordinary dealings, 
one may have to show one's hood. Uh, but as far as possible, give up this defending and attacking mentality, this friends and enemies mentality. Because if we have a defending and attacking mentality, we will offend somebody. And that's repeated throughout the Bhagavad Gita. Be a kind friend to all living entities. Be a kind friend to all living entities. You know, that's one of the many reasons why we're vegetarian. And then the other thing is, if you're kind to all living entities, which, by the way, is very difficult. That's not easy. That's not an easy thing to do. And if you really give your attention to your spiritual practices, if you don't do them as rituals, but you do them with attention, then what will happen? Tesham satatayutanam bhajatam priti purvakam didami buddhi yogam tam Buddha, you will get intelligence. Tesham evanukam partam aham agyana jamtamaha nasayam yatmabhavas to jnana dipena bhashvata. Prabhupada talks about in the Nectar Devotion preface that when you love Krishna, it's like one light switch that turns on all the lights. So if you really focus your attention on Krishna and you're kind to all living entities, Krishna will, within the heart, show you reality. Just like what happened to Arjuna. Arjuna surrendered to Krishna, and then Krishna revealed everything to him. Then after Krishna reveals to you, what will he say? He'll say, now I've shown you everything, now you... What does he say at the end of Bhagavad Gita? Now you do what you like, now you choose. So the third thing to do if you want to make rapid advancement is to choose rightly. So it's, a, it's a question of free will. If you do all, you, all the activities of bhakti with, with care and thought, if you serve the Vaishnavas with care and thought, you read the scriptures with care and thought and with heart, etc., etc., and you don't offend anyone, then very, very quickly reality will be manifest in your heart. And then you have to choose. If you do those things, your advancement will be very, very rapid. People's advancement in spiritual life is slow because they do things mechanically, or they offend others, or when they see reality, they choose illusion. When Krishna reveals hey, you're doing this wrong, or this is what you need to do next, and this is the step you have to take, they don't do it. They say, no, no, that's too hard, I can't do that. So Krishna will, actually the ultimate guru is Krishna. Prabhupada often says, you know, guru is one. Ultimately, guru is Krishna. And Krishna will reveal in the heart, through the words of the external guru, through the words of the Vaishnavas, through the scriptures, maybe even just from somebody on the street. Krishna will reveal, okay, this is the next step to take. And then one has to take it. And also be patient. You know, when I was a school teacher, the way I ran my classroom was individually so that each student could progress at their own rate and in their own way. I didn't run a factory-type school where everybody had to do the same thing at the same time. So because I ran things that way, it wasn't uncommon for students to come to me and say, well, I already understand this material. 
I think I'm ready to skip it. So then what would I do? What do you think I would do? If someone said, I understand this, I can go on to the next. What would I do? I'd what? Yes, I'd give them some exam. I'd give them some sort of test. And sometimes it was a fact. I had some students that were able to jump ahead even three years in mathematics and other things. But more often, it wasn't a fact. They were imagining they were ready for something that they weren't ready for. So we should want to go quickly, but we should want to go as quickly as we can go without falling on our face. And we should also trust Krishna that if we do those things, if we do everything with attention, we're careful never to offend any living entity, and whenever there's a choice presented to us, we always choose Krishna over illusion, that we will go as fast as we are capable of going without harm. Krishna knows how much we're willing to take at a particular time. Bhakti Thakur in Bhakti Loka says that fall down happens if you go too slowly or too fast. One second. What is the meaning of the fast term using spirituality? Hmm? What is the meaning of the fast? When we mentioned fast, fast, fast means what? Fast what? Oh, fast progress, fast advancement. What is the meaning of that? Of course, not the word meaning I mean. What is the deep meaning of it? Somebody want, you know, I want to move faster. Faster in what? Faster to whom? What is saying? Ah, well, I'll tell you how I understand it. That means I want to realize my spiritual identity. I want to see God. I want to realize my relationship with Him. I want to be free of the modes of material nature. Sirupa himself says that it takes some time. He has given a very right example also. Yes. After marriage, the lady has to wait and surrender complete to him to have a child. That's right. That he himself has given that what is the fastest. That it takes some. But we should want to go as fast as we can go. We don't want to go too slowly. We don't want to go too quickly. We don't want to say, you know, if the student comes and says, I want to finish my education tomorrow, and we see they're not ready. It's not possible. That's not possible and it's not pleasing. But other thing is not pleasing also. If someone says, oh, I will stay in school for 30 years. That is also not pleasing. So you, you want, Krishna wants to see that we're going at a proper rate. Also, sometimes Prabhupada says you can become Krishna conscious in a moment. So you'll say both. But that doesn't depend on the person concerned. It happens because of the karma. That's also it's it's both. It's both. One may be determined for that, but may not happen practically it's, in it's both. him. Therefore, three things. Enthusiasm, patience, and confidence. If you just have enthusiasm, that's the mode of passion. I want to become Krishna conscious right now. If you just have patience, that's the mode of ignorance. Oh... Uh, Whenever Krishna gives me his mercy. <laughs> so it has to be both enthusiasm and patience. I'm enthusiastic. I give my best attention. And patience that Krishna is the supreme teacher and guru and the Vaishnavas. They are going to take me in their own time. Confidence. I am going to achieve the goal. So we should try to go as fast as our teacher is willing to take us and be patient and confident that Krishna and Guru are going to take us as fast as we can if we're cooperative. 
We certainly shouldn't be lazy in our spiritual life saying, well, it's all going to be Krishna. And nor should we be so enthusiastic that if we don't become self-realized in one week, then we give up. You know, we should be prepared that no matter how many lifetimes it takes, like Rukmini, she wrote the letter to Krishna and she said, Krishna, come and kidnap me. And she said, if you don't come and take me away from this demon who wants to marry me, she said, then I'm prepared to do austerities for many, many lifetimes in order to achieve you. So we should have that much patience, but not laziness. Is that that all right? Full enthusiasm. I'm going to become Krishna conscious in this life. But if I don't become Krishna conscious in this life, I'm willing to go on as many lives as necessary. I want to become Krishna conscious this minute. But I'm going to be patient. If it takes me millions of lifetimes, I'm not going to give up with my Krishna consciousness. And confidence that if I'm determined, then I will achieve the goal. Thank you. That's very good point. By the way, phones have a silent mode. If you don't know how to put your phone in silent mode, please ask somebody. How do I put my phone on vibrate? You still know there's a call coming. You don't have to miss your calls, but anyway, whatever. Any other questions, comments? Yes. In the the practice of sadhana bhakti, Yes. what stage a sadhaka will be out of duality? That's a very good question. At what stage will a sadhaka be out of duality? Absolutely. Almost absolutely at bhava. Prabhupada describes that at the stage of bhava, you're free from the modes of material nature, and a person at bhava sees the naked form of material desires. You really see things as they are at bhava, although absolutely would have to be a prema. There's still some trace. trace in bhava. Although, on the other hand, Prabhupada talks about being ready, being liberated when you're ready for Raganuga sadhana, which is at the platform of nishta or ruchi. And he talks about that platform of nishta as being liberated. So there is certainly, I mean, even somebody in Satvagun is not experiencing as much duality. There's degrees. It's not just yes or no. It's like somebody in the mode of ignorance is much more on the platform of duality than someone in the mode of passion. And someone in the mode of passion is much more in duality than someone in the mode of goodness. compared to the sun rising in the morning where it gradually becomes light. So you say, you know, the sun's fully risen, it's fully light, it's noontime. Well, that's prema. But somebody in bhava is basically functioning above duality and even somebody at nishta, is there, the extent to which duality is affecting them is, is much less. At least at the platform of, of nishta, someone has some awareness of their actual identity. It's not complete, but some awareness. It's something like if you say, when does a child become an adult? So at a certain point, you can say, okay, this person's fully an adult, but if you want to say, 
like that what we teach in logic is how many hairs make a beard you know at what point it's a very difficult thing to say you know is there a particular day so we you know legally the countries may say okay the day you're 18 or the day you're 21 you're an adult but that that's not really true you may be fully an adult when you're 16, and you may be not fully an adult until you're 45, depending on, you know, who you are and what you are. Correct? You know, some people are physically adults and mentally something else, emotionally something else. So advancement is also not just like it's not this linear. You know, we we can talk about stages in boxes. Okay, here's this stage, and here's this stage, and here's. This. But when you're dealing with individuals, it's not really like that. Uh, just like Vishnu Chakravati Thakur and Madhuri Kanambani is talking about nishta, and he says nishta or steadiness applies to body, mind, and words. That your body, mind, and words are all steady in bhakti. And he said for most people, first you're steady in body, then you're steady in words, then you're steady in mind. He said, but for some people it may work differently. Now... <laughs> That's all right. One of the things you tolerate in the modern world. <laughs> but just think about what Vishnu Chakravati Chakra was saying. So in other words, you can meet a person whose their body is steady in bhakti. On the bodily platform, they only do bhakti. But they talk nonsense and they think nonsense. Not all the time, but some of the time. Right? So what stage are they on? But part of them is in Nishta. They got one foot over in Nishta. Correct? You understand? Yes. You understand? Yes. And what about per- the person who progresses a little differently? Because he says generally it's body, speech, and mind, but sometimes it's different. <coughs> what about a person who's steady in mind? Because Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says this is entirely possible. Someone whose mind is always absorbed in Krishna, but they're not steady in their body. Now, we tend to think that's not possible. We tend to think, well, if somebody's bodily activities are not steadily in bhakti, they couldn't possibly be steady in their mind, but that's not the case. They could be. What platform are they on? How are you going to put them in a box? You can say, well, we're not going to say it's nista until they're steady in all three, but that's, again, it's not exactly like that. They're partially in Nishta, just like a person may be partially matured in some ways. And there's some residual inartas up until prema. Now, which inartas are those? So for some people, the residual inartas may be very private. And for other people, the residual inartas may be very obvious. So there might be someone who's very advanced, but they have some residual inarta that's really obvious. Whenever you meet them, you're like, whoa. But that person may actually be more advanced than someone else whose residual inartas are more private. Does that make sense? Because a person could be more purified in mind than in body. 
So you may be seeing an artist in their bodily activities or in their speech, and their mind may be more pure than their speech in their body. It does. It does. It can. According to Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, it can happen. Generally, it doesn't happen that way, but it can. My point is, it can. It is possible. That means there are people for whom that's how it happens. That means you will probably meet some of them. That means some of the people you meet in the Hare Krishna movement have a purer mind than is evidenced by their speech and their activities. Interesting, isn't that? But apparently, the, the, the perception of the exactly, yes. exactly. So you, therefore, it's very difficult to put people into little boxes and to say, okay, this person is. Is, is over here as you're you know once you're fully at prema or once you're you're fully above or fully at nista but as you're coming there there's going to be different and you can't say until you're fully there you're at the stage below you're partially at the stage below partially at the stage above again the example would be with growing up if a person's physically mature they are physically mature just because they're emotionally immature doesn't take away the fact that they're physically mature, correct? Different parts of a person may mature at different rates. In fact, that's the general experience, isn't it? Do most people mature in all aspects exactly at the same time? No, that's quite unusual. Most people mature in some ways more. Some people mature intellectually long before they mature physically. You know, I've met some children who were like adults in their intellect before they were adults in their emotions or before they were adults in their body. And some people who were very mature emotionally before they mature in their body and, and, and in other ways. So that also happens on the platform of devotion. And you'll see... Uh, You'll see people who are there, and they're also very advanced in one area, not in another. One person may be very advanced in, in certain aspects of bhakti and very unadvanced in other aspects of bhakti. Some of this has to do with what we did on our past lives and so many things like that. So we, we're, this is a very, please remember this is a very individual philosophy. We believe that we're individuals. We're, we're not machines. And therefore, whenever we're looking at the philosophy, sometimes things are explained for simplicity's sake. Well, it's just like this, and then like this, and like this. But it's always going to be somewhat different for individuals. The, the experiences are always going to be somewhat different for individuals. The progression is going to be somewhat different for each individual. How you're going to progress in bhakti, and how I'm going to progress, and how you're going to progress, and how you're going to, is all going to, is always going to be, and our ultimate realization is going to be a little different. The Krishna I realized is going to, according to Lord Kapila, is going to be a little different than the Krishna you realize. You know, there's a certain quality of Krishna that I'm really going to notice, and there's a certain quality of Krishna that you're really going to notice, and there's a certain quality of Krishna that you're really going to notice. So I may say, wow, isn't Krishna the most this and you're going to say well really he's the most this isn't that nice I like that I like the fact that it's a very individual philosophy for me that's one of the most attractive features of Krishna consciousness 
but it does make it hard to put things into mathematical formulas. If you try to put things into mathematical formulas, we, you may do that for simplicity's sake, but please know that it's that's not the whole. Okay, so, so a general principle to understand this. You can under yes, exactly. It's given as a general principle for understanding, but don't take that general principle for understanding and think you can shove everybody into it in exactly the same way. Well, it'll be impersonalism, basically. It'll, it'll make you'll be trying to make the process into something mechanical. Were you at my classes on chapter 12 at the big temple? You were there? Yeah. Okay. So there we were looking particularly uh, at gyan-covered bhakti. What is gyan-covered bhakti? So gyan-covered bhakti means if you believe that first I have to become purified through gyan, separately from bhakti, and then after I become purified by gyan, separately from bhakti, then I can take up bhakti. And karma-covered bhakti is I have to become purified through karma, separately from bhakti, and then I can take up bhakti. So if anyone ever tells you, if anyone ever tells you, you can't think about Krishna until you're self-realized, that's gyan-covered bhakti. Now when Krishna's talking about, he's talking there about the jnani. He's saying the jnani eventually through jnan comes to realize me. So you can do that. You can first do karma yoga, then jnana yoga, then jnana yoga, and then switch over to bhakti. You can do karma yoga and switch over to bhakti, or jnana yoga and switch over to bhakti. But Krishna's not recommending it. He's saying, Klesha dhika drasta shama so he's saying don't do that that's a difficult way to do it so we're not recommending that and then it becomes karma mizra bhakti again mizra bhakti you're covering your bhakti with karma again so you're not in, you're not in uttam bhakti uttam bhakti is when you're saying the way I'm going to become purified is through bhakti itself now bhakti in- includes some karma and some again we do things in bhakti we don't we don't do nothing. So there's some activity and we gain knowledge in bhakti. But we, our activities are part of bhakti and our jnana is part of bhakti. It's not something separate. So sadhana bhakti starts with thinking of Krishna according to the nectar devotion. That's the beginning of sadhana bhakti. Day one. You're a neophyte beginner day one. In, in vaiti sadhana bhakti. The essence of your practice is thinking of Krishna. And the way you're getting purified is thinking of Krishna. So if someone says to you, you can't think of Krishna yet. First you have to become pure. Then you can think of Krishna. They are preaching Gyan covered bhakti. Is that yes, clear? It's clear. Uh, is it true, Mataji, that sometimes in our devotion, so-called Gyan is blocking us to enter into the bhava? Because Definitely. If you're, if you're engaging in Gyan covered bhakti, you will be blocked. Definitely. Everything will be slowed. 
Karma covered bhakti, gyan covered bhakti is going to slow things down considerably. Bhagmanam janmanam. <laughs> It means that uh, in our devotional service, uh, we should see only the Krishna's pleasure. No other knowledge should be applied other than the Krishna's pleasure. Apply knowledge just for Krishna's pleasure. That what's purifying you is pleasing Krishna. What's purifying you is not knowledge separate from bhakti. Knowledge that's part of bhakti is purifying you because that's bhakti. If I'm studying Chaitanya Charitamrita to get knowledge of Krishna and knowledge of Krishna's rasas so I can fall in love with Krishna. That's part of my bhakti. It's not that, well, I'm not going to touch the books anymore because that's gyan. But this is gyan that's enhancing my thinking of Krishna. It's not, a, it's not the gyan that... We're talking about that gyan. It's I have to realize myself. I have to realize myself or I have to realize Brahman. And then I can think of Krishna. Then I can become attached to Krishna. I mean, I remember once in a temple, I was standing in front of the altar and some other devotee was there and I looked at her and I said, isn't Krishna handsome? And she said, are we allowed to think Krishna is handsome? I said, who do you want to think is handsome? <laughs> some movie star? <laughs> yeah. So if someone says, oh, you can't, no, you can't get attached to Krishna. You're not allowed to get attached to Krishna. First you have to be advanced and then you can become attached to Krishna. That's gyan covered by. Once you try to become attached to Krishna from the very beginning, in whatever way you can. Once you think of Krishna, become attached to Krishna, try to please Krishna, try to have some love for Krishna from day one. Or if you say, well, I can't do that because at first I have to do all my material duties properly. We should do our material duties as an offering to Krishna. Be a good husband to please Krishna. Be a good wife to please Krishna. Be a good citizen to please Krishna. But being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good citizen, that is not going to purify you alone by itself. And if someone says, well, you can't perform higher levels of bhakti because you're not yet a perfect husband, that's karma-covered bhakti. First you have to be the perfect husband and father, then you can be. That's karma-covered bhakti. That's a weed that's growing up with the bhakti plant. That clear? Okay, it's getting late. I think we could take one more. Is there someone who hasn't asked a question who'd like to ask a question? Well, thank you very much. Did you have a question? Yes, please. Just going back to that discussion, is there any example where mind is stable but the speech is not stable or the bodily activities are not uh, stable? An example from Shastra? I mean, I know of people like that. But if you want an example from the Shastra. Perceive that situation where mind is Where the mind is, is, it's not pure. Not pure, steady, it's not pure. NIST is not pure. Um, I mean, I can think of people that I know. But I'd have, to, I'd have to really think for a while of some example from the Shastra. In the speech, they hurt somebody. Um, We're not talking about hurting somebody. We're talking about... I mean, let's say in the speech is harsh, for example, if I could put it that way. 
When we're talking about unsteadiness, we're not talking about offensiveness. I'm talking about offensive. We're talking about nonsense. It's not Krishna conscious. It's not fixed on Krishna. No, he was on a on a different platform of existence entirely. Now that you're looking at an avaduta, who's their their function, their well, ex- yes, but that's but you're looking at you're looking at a whole different category. That's very high category. That what you're looking at there is somebody who's so internally fixed that they no longer need to follow any of the external rules because they've already realized all the purpose of all the rules. Something like Albert Einstein was able to figure out the conclusions without doing the math. And when he had to present his his conclusions to other scientists, he had to employ other people to do the mathematical calculations. He just saw the answer. So if you're already self-realized, you don't need to go through any of the rituals that people go through to become self-realized. Now generally, it's advised that such persons still do the external rituals because otherwise it can cause a disturbance in society. But some of them may not. They have no need to. But that's not because their body and speech is not fixed in Krishna. It's because their body and speech is so much on the spiritual platform that they're not, it's not necessary for them to do any of the ordinary activities. But it's not because their body and speech is lagging behind their mind and spiritual development. It's two completely different things. One, you're, one is you're talking about a sadhaka because Nista is still in the realm yes, of sadhana. Yes, 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 yes. So what we're talking about here is a, is a sadhaka, someone who's not yet at sadhya, who's not yet at bhava or prema. They're a sadhaka, and generally the sadhaka becomes first fixed in their body, then fixed in their speech, then fixed in their mind. But that doesn't necessarily happen. Completely well. Eventually, you want to become completely balanced. Yes, but on the to become completely balanced, these different aspects may arrive there at different times. What's the last stage? How how does the ultimate stage feel? How does prema feel? So, if you really want to read how prema feels, that's described very nicely. In, the, in, in several different places. In Madhurya Kadambani, in the section on Prema, that's a very short book, you can easily read. Also in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, which is a much bigger book, How Gopu Kumar Achieves Prema, or in the descriptions in Krishna book of the residence of Vrindavan. So in Prema, one's heart is completely melted in love. There's no envy. And one is experiencing... Unlimited, condensed bliss. Very, very thick, very condensed, but without any limit. And ever expanding. And one sees everything as spiritual. One no longer sees things, this is matter, this is spirit. One sees that God is everywhere, one sees oneself as a spiritual being, and one sees God face to face. 
and is overwhelmed with the beauty, the fragrance, the touch, the sound, and the qualities of the absolute truth. Yes. So that is the ultimate goal. But what we were talking about here is an intermediate stage. And this intermediate stage is when one becomes fixed in one's practices. When one becomes fixed in one's practices, the effects of the material nature are greatly diminished. Yes. If someone sees the ultimate that we were talking about, the highest. The highest. What then? What then? Yeah. If the person spiritual. Yes. See, being spiritual is not definitely being only religious. Or okay. only religious does not be, okay, religiously it takes you to, to that level, the highest level, ultimate level, we all need to reach there. Mm. But someone has experienced this. Yes. So are you, are you, is that a comment or are you asking something? I'm just Telling you, if someone has reached there, the ultimate power, the ultimate spiritual uh, feeling, yes. in contact, one on one. Yes, one is seeing God face to face. As they see them, there's their self, their own spiritual self, and they're seeing God face to face. Yes. What then? Even after not really, as we were discussing, bodily doing things or. You want to know what comes after that? What then? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. What is the next step after perfection? The next step after perfection is that one is eternally engaged in a variety of loving activities. With adventure and mystery and uh, all varieties of emotions which are different flavors of ecstasy. So that is described very nicely in our book, Krishna book which I would highly recommend that you, that you read. What, is, what are the activities of the perfected souls? How do the perfected souls engage in variety of, with, of a, varieties of emotion, varieties of loving exchange, directly with God in their own spiritual realization? Okay, we, I think we need to end. It's 10 to 10. But Let's walk. Uh, sorry. <laughs> what is the difference between the sentiment and bhava in uh, spiritual progress? I mean, because Shri Prabhupada has commented in one place that sentiment is a good sign, but it is not bhava again. So, what you'd have the- to show me the, the specific reference. Bhava literally means emotion, and actual spiritual bhava is when the heart is melting with spiritual emotion. But that's different than some material sentiment. No, I'm talking about the spiritual sentiment. You maybe, no, spiritual sentiment is, you, you'd have to show me the reference, because I'm not sure exactly. Maybe you can find the quote, bring it tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll be at uh, Iskan Bahrain, and we'll be doing a virtual tour of Radhakund and Shamakund. So it's wonderful that everyone is so eager to turn all these things, and unfortunately Krishna says, that one who's temperate in eating, sleeping, working, and recreation can mitigate all pains by practice of the yoga system. And therefore, I think it's wiser for us to be temperate in our sleeping. So thank you very much. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada.